Welcome to Morning Report Top Stories, a selection of news from RNZ's morning news programme. Emergency department doctors say they are turning up to work today with no idea if there will be enough security guards to keep them safe. The government paid for 200 extra guards across some hospitals over summer, but the last of that funding, funding finished yesterday. Te Whatu Ora says it won't be deciding on what it does next until it has formally reviewed the programme. But in a statement to Morning Report, the Minister Shane Reti says the agency can reallocate some of its funding to ensure there are more guards at the most high-risk EDs until the 1st of July. We'll be joined now by the Chair of the Australasian College for Emergency Medicine New Zealand, Kate Allen. Uh, Good morning. Good morning, Corin. So, what is the outlook now? Do you expect there will be some security guards on at some of the more, I guess, uh, dangerous hotspots? We understand that there um, should be some security guards coming to those hotspots. Um, however, we want security. We need security 24-7 in every emergency department in our country. How successful has this program been over summer? There's been a very mixed bag of response, and it's really dependent on the quality of the security staff, um, meaning their level of training and their integration within the ED. So those that are fully integrated part of the team um, working with the emergency medicine staff on the floor, um, it has been very successful. But those where they have been more based outside and not really involved in um, the day-to-day um, care of patients, um, it has not been successful. How is it decided where they go? What do you mean from the hospital perspective? Well, in terms of where, where are these hotspots? What, uh, what is the threshold, so to speak? I'm not sure of the threshold that has been used by Te Whara to decide where the security guards will be placed. Um, our rural and regional hospitals are also very vulnerable, so even though they're not as busy, they are still very vulnerable to violence and aggression. And what sort of violence is, it, is, is the problem here? What has been experienced? Oh, look, it's a, once again, it's a mixed bag of everything. Um, I would, I would, um, it's very un, underreported. We know that verbal aggression is pretty much part of day-to-day, um, but there's also physical aggression, physical threats. I know of staff that are leaving, staff that are suffering from PTSD, from um, violence and aggression they've suffered at work, and it's just not okay. We, we need to go to work to care for people and to be safe. And this is only the beginning. This is the beginning of the solution is to put the security staff within the emergency department, but we also need to look at the underpinning reasons as to why our communities are becoming more violent and aggression, why there's more violence and aggression, and why, why um, and dealing with these long waits within the emergency departments that is leading to frustration and mm. anger for families and patients. Is it not unreasonable to review this uh, interim programme to see if it's worked, to see where it's worked? As you say, there's some, perhaps some issues around whether you're inside or outside the building. I mean, a review sounds like a good idea. A review is a good idea, and what we want in place is something that works and is sustainable. Um, there's short-term solutions. Um, you know, they don't work if they're not properly researched and we know what we're doing. But we do know that we need integrated and trained security staff within the emergency department. We know it makes a difference. Um, that's obvious from, from the outset. So, so what does this training look like? So just talk us through here. You're saying if the, if the security guard is just outside the ED, can they not get inside quickly enough to deal with a situation that uh, develops? Do you need people inside sort of near uh, the consultation areas? Well, emergency departments are quite spread out um, and they need to be immediately available. And 
being outside, you're not really aware of what's going in. Often outside, before you even get inside, there's the waiting area and then you've got other parts within the department. So it's quite complex. And when you're outside, you really have no idea about what's going on inside. Um, and they, you need to also be hands-on and, and part of the team. It's about um, interacting with the patients, but inter- interacting with family and staff, and that's not happening when people are based outside departments or, or potentially just wandering through as a presence. That, that may be a visible deterrent, but it's still not effective in actually managing people who can become very violent and very aggressive very quickly. So how much training would be required because that might involve quite a bit of time and money to get staff that are that are capable of doing that? Anything we do involves time and money and it needs that investment. It will take time and money um, and I'm, I, I don't, I don't, I'm not involved in training of security guards but I need to know that the people who come and work in our emergency departments are properly trained to work with patients in very unique situations. Okay, so we've got this gap now between what you had, which ends today, then through to July, where there is the potential for some money to be reallocated. Just how concerned are you about this potentially lower level of security that will be offered? It's concerning, but in all honesty, Corin, we're used to it. So prior to December, this is what we were living with anyway. Um, and as I've said, some of those security guards that were, were present over summer didn't make a big difference. So for some, there won't be any palpable difference at all. For those where the, the security made a difference and were within the department and dealing with patients and family, then they will feel it and they'll be scared. And just finally, how much of this is infrastructure-based? Does it depend on the age of the ED? Does the physical space make a difference? Uh it- potentially can make a difference to the violence and aggression. Um, it doesn't make a difference to how the security can respond, but the, the infrastructure, if people are having prolonged waits in, in bad environments, then yes, it can absolutely lead to increased violence and aggression. And what, just, and what do you want to see done today? When we, if, you, if you were calling on the minister, what would you say? We want to know that, that we will receive 24-7 security in every emergency department in New Zealand. All right, thank you very much for your time. That was the chair of the Australasian College for Emergency Medicine uh, New Zealand, Kate, uh, Dr Kate Allen. Let's talk to Tafatu Ora's Chief People Officer, Andrew Slayton, now, who is with us in the Wellington studio. Kia ora, good morning. Good morning, Colin. Well, you will have heard that. What level of security will now be on offer through 2 July? Uh, yes, so currently there's two things that uh, we we did over the summer period. One, we had a had a sort of uh, sort of a summer surges, it was called, which was really about some of um, the EDs that experienced an increased workload over summer, um, or had events in their communities that needed that extra um, sort of extra support because there was extra volume or additional um, additional events. Then we had um, our eight high priority um, EDs, which was where there's significantly more more activity and volume um, that those EDs respond to. So um, we've got two things um, going on from today. So first of all, we've gone out to those teams that had that summer surge and um, said, hey, look, between now and uh, the end of July, um, if you've got something happening in your community, that means that you're going to you know, need some additional security support 
let us know. And what are we talking about here? Big, a big festival you're worried about people being oh, intoxicated or it, something turning yeah, up? Yeah, so look, we've obviously got some public holidays in that period, so there will be festivals in places. You know, um, one of the ones that came through yesterday was our team down in Queenstown, who are obviously, they've probably got more of a winter surge than a summer surge. So um, really been making sure that those... those so that's going to be more of an ad hoc basis? Yeah, when they need it. One of the things that um, we've got sort of as early feedback on the initiative over summer was those local EDs said, hey, it was really great that we could, um, you know, get security guards because we felt we needed them, not because of local budget budget issues. So what we want to do is make sure if they need it, they can, they can get it out of that central pool. In terms of the other eight, what we've done there is we've gone out to, to all of those eight and said, hey, um, you, you had a number between three and five additional guards um, over the Christmas period what do you need um, that's, um, you know, what's another um, sort of a good improvement on that? So we've committed to them that they can um, put on up to two to three guards more than what they would have had prior to this initiative between now and the end of the end of July. So does that mean, though, they will have the same as the summer surge? No, that's a slight reduction on the summer surge, and I think um, you know what we were just hearing from what we we're just hearing from Kate. There is in some places it didn't work as well, and we need to take a take a bit of a look at and things. Most importantly, it's an increase on what they would have had back over the same period last year. Have you been able to find the money, reallocate money to do this? Yeah, so for this particular phase, what we're doing there is we've um, we've looked at some other other programs of work that we're just going to slow down their timing so we can make sure that while we're undertaking this evaluation with our with our clinicians um, and our local teams, that we can um, make sure that they've got more than what they've previously had. Are you confident that the medical professionals working in ED are safe? Look, I, I'm um, I'm confident that as an organisation, we're doing as much as we can to make sure we've got the tools on the front line to improve that. I mean, sadly, um, we've seen increasing aggression and violence towards our staff across all of our clinical settings uh, for the last few years, um, and our people deserve to be able to go to They're work. They're going to feel less safe from tomorrow, though, aren't they? Because you've said yourself there's going to be slightly fewer... Uh, security guards there and in some of those spots around the country unless there's a big event on they're not going to have that same level of coverage yeah absolutely and we'll continue to do that um, we'll continue to do that evaluation looking at it you know we've got that feedback that it wasn't the the right thing necessarily in all of those eds that they're looking at other types of resource that can de-escalate that we're also rolling out de-escalation um, training to all um, all of um, the Health New Zealand to fight order staff across the country, um, so that way then everyone um, has got the tools that they need to try and de de escalate um, aggression and violence. Just finally, uh, this runs through till July. What then are you going to bid in the budget round f- once you've reviewed this for a more permanent? Uh, process here that ensures the safety of ED professionals? Yeah, look, my, my, my focus at the moment is making sure that we look back and evaluate um, what's happened over the last three months, talk to our people. What we're hearing is that they feel um, safer at work where they've had that additional security presence, that they've um, that some of those violent incidents have been um, be able to be de-escalated by staff and that we need to improve the training um, and how we respond. So just on that long term, can they expect this to last, something like this to be there long term? 
Yeah, look, what I what I can um, you know what I can commit to is that we'll be looking at that that evaluation and and working with our teams to to make sure that we we look at that amongst a number of other needs um, across the health system. Andrew Slater, thank you very much for your time. That is Tafatu Ora's chief people officer. Back here, it's now a criminal offence in this country to support Hamas. The government's designated the political wing of Hamas as a terrorist entity. It made the same ruling about the group's military wing back in 2010. At the same time, the government's introduced sanctions on more than a dozen Israeli settlers. Our political reporter, Annika Smith, has more. It was former Prime Minister Chris Hipkins who first asked officials for advice on designating Hamas's political wing as a terrorist entity following the deadly October 7 attacks on communities in southern Israel. Seven months later, the new coalition now has the information. Here's Foreign Affairs Minister Winston Peters. Well, the advice was that they were considered to be acting in a way that terrorists do. The military arm had already been uh, designated that way. Now the political arm showed the same propensity to violence and terrorism. Terrorist designations are a tool the Prime Minister can use to limit the activities of both individuals and groups. They freeze any assets here and make supporting or participating a criminal offence. Mr Peters doesn't know how many people or assets might be caught up in the changes, but says a legal framework is now in place to take action. I hope we've got the uh, resources to ensure that the position and status we have given them is one that has legal consequences, yes. It's a move that's being welcomed by David Kuman of the Israel Institute. It's been um, a long time coming. It now brings New Zealand slightly more into line with our traditional allies and Five Eyes partners. There were never, ever two wings to Hamas, just as there are not two wings of Hezbollah. And um, hopefully the government will move to designate the whole of Hezbollah before there's uh, another October 7th-like event that we hope never happens. Not everyone agrees. National Chair of the Palestine Solidarity Network, Aotearoa, John Minto, says the step is a knee-jerk reaction and a step backwards from an independent foreign policy. This is all part of a, of a very well-organised smear campaign by Israel in conjunction with the US and New Zealand's part of it now to demonise Hamas um, because Israel wants to tell the world we have no one to be, to be a, a peace partner with. Winston Peters says New Zealand is treating everyone fairly, pointing to the government's new travel ban on more than a dozen extremist Israeli settlers who have committed violent acts against Palestinians in the West Bank. They've behaved and committed terrorist atrocities against people on the ground in uh, the areas we're talking about, and so we thought they should be rightfully designated the same way. Mr Peters says recent statements by Israeli ministers about plans for building more settlements on the West Bank are of serious concern and will only increase tensions. On another conflict, Russia's illegal invasion of Ukraine, the government has just introduced a new round of sanctions that include an explicit ban on exporting items to Russia through a third party. Mr Peters says it's highly possible this is currently happening and the changes give authorities the capacity to investigate. That was political reporter Annika Smith there on uh, New Zealand now designating the entirety of Hamas as a terrorist entity. Listening to that was Otago University International Relations Professor Robert Patman. Kia ora, good morning. Welcome to the programme. Why do you think the government has made this policy shift now? Kia Ingrid. Well, the government, uh, since it's been in place, uh, had uh, promised closer alignment with traditional allies and... Uh, 
also to act with greater urgency on the international stage. And I think you can see this announcement as an attempt to fulfil that pledge. And uh, I think Mr Peters makes the point uh, that this is, as he, as he puts it, um, by defining the entirety of Hamas as a terrorist organisation and at the same time banning extremist Israeli settlers from travelling to New Zealand, he's trying to strike a, a delicate diplomatic balance. For you know, for other observers, however, they may see it quite differently. Yeah, let's look at Hamas. How realistic is it to consider there being you know two separate um, wings of Hamas? Well, I, I think the point, the distinction was placed in the first place to recognise the context in which Hamas operates. Um, the, the trouble with de- defining Hamas as just a terrorist organisation per se is that it implies that Hamas is the central problem in the Israeli-Palestinian issue or the conflict between them, whereas there's a wider conflict between Israel's desire for security and the Palestinian desire for self-determination. Hamas, it should be stressed, arose or was created in 1987 uh, as part of an uprising against Israel's occupation of Palestinian territories. And so... In a sense, for many observers, uh, the New Zealand position would look like a tilt towards the Biden-Netanyahu position, that Hamas is a central problem and ignores the context of Israel's occupation and blockade of Palestinian territories, which has enabled Hamas to present itself as an armed resistance group, which is prepared to use terrorism uh, to defend Palestinian rights. What does this mean for regular Palestinian people and also uh, in terms of a, a potential governing body over Gaza when this conflict ends? Well, that's the big question, when it ends. Uh, at the moment, it's a, it's a curious uh, tilt uh, in many respects because New Zealand, uh, unlike its, all, its Five Eyes partners, has since the 27th of October been pressing uh, for immediate humanitarian um, truce or ceasefire. And recently we confirmed that position in, in, in line with our partners in Australia and Canada. The United States uh, which we've just tilted towards, has been consistently opposing New Zealand's position in that car. And New Zealand and the United States, even as at the moment, is only talking about a temporary ceasefire uh, or a pause. So there is a bit of a, a tension between New Zealand's diplomacy and this, this announcement. And you, you have touched on this, but the sanctions against the Israeli settlers, uh, mm. how do you interpret that and, and do you as I say, you have alluded to this, is it enough for us to be uh, seen as not picking sides? Well, I think it acknowledges that essentially military force, and Mr Peters you know, has made this point repeatedly, and I think he's absolutely right, there is not a military solution to a political problem. And um, by these sanctions, there is acknowledgement that the illegal settlements that have gone on uh, are part of the problem. And at the moment, the Israeli government under Mr Netanyahu, and there's many people in the United States who are Jewish and within Israel who do not oppose, who strongly oppose Mr Netanyahu's policies. And the problem is that Mr Netanyahu is a determined opponent of a Palestinian state and the right of self-determination for the Palestinians, which only boosts extremist groups like Hamas. If you want to diminish the group of Hamas amongst the Palestinians, then, you know, the argument is give them a clear pathway 
to a, a viable and Palestinian state. Appreciate your analysis as always uh, this morning. That was Otago University International Relations Professor uh, Robert Patman. Port will six companies convicted of health and safety failings in the lead up to the Fakari White Island disaster. Well, they will be sentenced today in the Auckland District Court. The eruption in 2019 claimed 22 lives, 25 people were injured. The hearings have been held in the Environment Court all this week because the District Court is too small. Victims and families have been making submissions along with the defendants. The Crown Research Institute at GNS Science was the last to be heard. Our reporter Lucy Shah was there. For years, GNS has been contracting Fakadi tour helicopter companies to fly its scientists to the island. The pilots would wait there while scientists carried out their work monitoring the volcano. The Crown Agency is now being sentenced for its failure to consult pilots about the risks of what they were doing between 2016 and 2019. WorkSafe prosecutor Christine MacDonald Casey says while the charge against GNS does not relate to the day of the disaster, its failings are serious. The nature of the environment the pilots were required to work in posed a very serious risk, a risk of death. If an eruption occurred while they were there in that environment, given these factors, this failing, we say, is significant. WorkSafe argues the fine should range from a starting point of between $150,000 to $250,000. Christy MacDonald says GNS had a duty to provide risk assessment information to the pilots, as it did for its own staff. It may have been the very type of information that would have made a helicopter operator that employed pilots recognise the degree of danger that trips to Fakare posed and reconsider the safety and viability of their overall operation. The lawyer for GNS, Rachel Reed Casey, says the Institute accepts it failed to communicate the risks in a structured way, although it did talk to pilots on a daily basis. Much of that communication that did occur contained the key risk information. However, GNS accepts it should have conducted it in a more formal way to ensure that on each and every occasion all relevant information was passed on. Rachel Reed says the fine for her client should start somewhere between eighty and ninety thousand dollars. She argues GNS deserves a forty-five percent discount for its early guilty plea and other mitigating factors, such as its good safety record and its help with getting volcanic experts to give evidence in the trial. She says the institute did give robust advice through its volcanic alerts, but sadly that this couldn't have predicted the eruption. She also asked the judge to consider the impact of any fines on the agency's services to the public. Obviously the funds will come from its current budget and the impact of those funds will be a reduction in the services that it is able to provide. The other defendants, White Island Tours and Fakari Management Limited, have also asked for fines to be reduced and the three helicopter companies all say they have no money to pay any penalty. The sentencing starts shortly before midday today. That was Lucy Xia there wrapping up uh, some of the evidence being given by GNS Science at the sentencing hearing uh, for some of those companies who have been convicted of health and safety breaches in the Afakari White Island disaster.
Well, the budget for a major upgrade to Wellington Water's treatment plant has blown out by more than $40 million. The Temarua Water Treatment Plant supplies 45% of the Wellington region's water. The upgrade will increase the amount of water the facility can treat. As Nick James reports, councils and ratepayers will have to dig a little deeper to pay for it. The budget for the upgraded plant was $44.5 million in December 2021. But due to changes for addressing seismic risk, extra work that was needed on old equipment and inflation, that budget has skyrocketed to $88.3 million. Greater Wellington Regional Council Chair Darren Ponter says it's worrying. It's concerning uh, in a um, fiscally constrained environment, in any environment uh, to be frank, um, uh, nobody wants to set out thinking they're paying 40-odd million and suddenly find they're paying 88 uh, million. He says city councillors and ratepayers will have to foot the bill. I'm aware that Wellington Water have tried to keep the scope down, but uh, clearly with an increase like this, uh, the water levy that we charge the four metropolitan councils uh, will need to go up to accommodate that. Wellington Water's Head of Regulatory Services, Charles Barker, says they've been dealing with increased costs. Like anyone else building their own home in the last few years, everyone would appreciate since 2021 uh, till now the cost of building materials and labour have significantly increased at an unprecedented rate. He says there are no plans to ask the Regional Council for more cash. All um, uh, increases in budget have to be justified and uh, that would be the case for any further expenditure. But at this stage, there's no intention of asking for any more money. Barker says because the scope of the project has increased, with old equipment being fixed, he wouldn't call it a budget blowout. That would indicate that uh, the cost is the increasing cost was only getting us what we had before. Civil Contractors New Zealand's Fraser May says mid-last year, members were surveyed on how they felt about project costs. 81% of businesses uh, that, that are involved in uh, civil construction, that's horizontal construction in New Zealand, have been significantly impacted by cost escalation and supply chain issues over the past 12 months. He says international conflicts have had a big impact. If we look at uh, the war overseas, obviously some of the costs like fuel have been greatly escalated. So, I mean, if you look at even the, some of the time frames it's taken to get materials into the country because of that, uh, you know, there, there's been some pretty serious cost escalation recently. I think it's well documented. The cost increases to the Timarua water treatment plant upgrade are being accounted for in Greater Wellington Regional Council's upcoming 2024 to 2025 budget. However, it's subject to final approval in the long term plan. That report from Nick James into a major upgrade for Wellington Waters, uh, one of their treatment plants that's blown out by more than $40 million. A school leader says he's worried he won't be able to provide free school lunches for all his students next year, which he says could increase truancy at his school. Associate Education Minister David Seymour has confirmed the government-funded school lunch programme is under review ahead of this year's budget. Ellen O'Dwyer reports. Porirua College Deputy Principal John Topp says the school feeds over a 1,000 students a day through the free school lunch programme called Ka Ora Ka Ako. The school's contract to provide the lunches runs out at the end of the year. He's worried the government won't renew it for all students. Sometimes it's the only food we'll have in that day. And can we have more? Um, so we've got to keep doing that. But we can't target students that need it because they're going to feel fucking about that and that's going to make it worse here at school and they just won't come. 
Since 2019, the programme has been offered to all students in schools with the highest levels of disadvantage. Truancy is an ongoing challenge at Porirua College, where leaders say poverty and the cost of living crisis is hitting some families hard. The school has about 70% of students attending on any given day, Mr Top says. Attendance officer Morse Skipworth agrees the meals make a difference for keeping kids in school. A lot of people are just seeing students not showing up to school, not sitting in the seats. But I think what they're not seeing is that they didn't have dinner or they haven't had lunch or they haven't had breakfast. And sometimes if they are in the seats and they're not listening, they're just seeing the student not listening. But they're not seeing that the student is hungry and then they can't listen and they can't focus. The latest Ministry of Education attendance statistics show that in Term 3 of last year, only 46% of kids across the country attended school more than 90% of the time. Associate Education Minister David Seymour warned at a select committee this week that if the truancy crisis wasn't solved, it would leave an 80-year shadow of negative effects on society. But he says the school lunch programme, including whether it's targeted to certain students only, is going to be reviewed in the lead-up to the budget. He says there isn't hard evidence in New Zealand the programme has improved attendance since it began. When you've got a programme that is close to $350 million every year, uh, you've got a duty to ask yourself, uh, is this programme delivering value for the people who need it most? Um, not creating any waste and having an effect on uh, the government's overall objectives. Mr Seymour says everything's on the table when it comes to truancy, including imposing fines on parents who don't send their kids to school. He says fines aren't going to be used on families in financial hardship. We find people who speed past to school, but somehow uh, we apply a totally different standard uh, to the duty that says you've got to send your kids to school. Te Tai Tokoro Principals Association President Pat Newman questions how a fine system would work between the government and families. What are they going to do if they don't pay them? Put them in jail at one hundred and fifty to 200000 a year. I mean, you've got to look, how are you going to enforce something? If you're going to make it a rule, how are you going to enforce it? Mr Newman, who's been in education for 51 years, says he wants effort and money put into regionally-led programmes with children's attendance at the centre of the community. Ellen O'Dwyer reporting there. You've been listening to Morning Report Top Stories.